0: With mandel today my guest is my friend franklin why don't you introduce yourself
1: hello my name is franklin debrucen and this is the first
0: time that i've ever been on a podcast thank you for having me today's an exciting episode not only are we going to do our usual order of things a uh, little bit of just general discussion art news and then art history today franklin and i are also going to participate in a bit of a, a whiskey bourbon tasting Our first uh, glass is filled with four roses, small batch whiskey. Cheers. Let's give it a little sip. What do you think? It's nice. It's pretty smooth. It doesn't hurt too much like some lower quality whiskeys. It's a pretty nice quality whiskey. I've had it for a little while. It's, It's, you can drink it, you know, if you're, you know, Right before a meal or you're just trying to wind down it's a, it's a pretty nice whiskey I've enjoyed having it.
1: Yeah this is very smooth. I really like the uh, the label and um, yeah I'm just trying to come up with some notes of flavors that I'm well, tasting.
0: Well you can always you know discuss them as we could. T- oh wow you went for the entire glass in one go. Oh, yeah. I just went for a bit of a sip. <laughs> um, so yeah um, why don't we get into it. Um, Frank you went abroad to france and uh, you did a lot of really nice photography in fact your photography was in a show i helped you mat some of your work it was really nice getting to actually see the works up close and personal um any cool things you learned about doing uh photography especially in a location like paris
1: oh well definitely i've done photography my whole life really since i would say even maybe elementary school But uh, I've never really had any formal education in photography until this past summer when I was in Paris. Summer Um, of uh, 2019. Yep. I was studying under uh, Pulitzer Prize award-winning photographer David Turnley, who's a professor at University of Michigan. He was uh, Nelson Mandela's photographer for a brief period. That is correct, yeah. He's had a very uh, illustrious career doing many projects throughout the world, but learning... Under him was a really special experience because he really gave me a more fundamental understanding of how the camera works. And once I was able to kind of grasp each uh, concept of manipulating a camera, you know, shutter, aperture, all of these different techniques and tools, I was able to, or I at least noticed my photography take a huge leap and yeah, my work that came out of the summer was just really, uh, really great. Photographing in Paris makes it a lot easier to be yeah, a photographer. A lot of sights. Yeah, yeah um, that city is beautiful and um, it's hard really not to take a good photo when you're there.
0: Yeah, I mean, while I was in Florence and Rome, I took film and digital photography. In Florence, it was all film and, uh, well, no, Rome, it was all digital. Florence, I did both digital and film. Uh, I took a lot of photos when I was in museums, as well as the street life. Um, I actually have a collection of a good amount of photographs from uh, the use of my film camera. It was actually my dad's old film camera from when he was a kid. And that uh, I took um, many photos of people on the street kind of using experimental techniques, manually setting the camera uh, and kind of firing from the hip. Um, not really looking down the lines of the lens, but kind of just, Letting fate take some good photos, I mean, I took probably hundreds of photos, but only a certain amount were of a good quality that actually resulted in tangible photos okay. that weren't blurry.
1: Yeah, in street photography especially, you'll definitely find uh, a lot of firing from the hip, praying that that photo works out. You see a character down the street and you just gotta capture him before the moment passes. Um, you actually I, saw a character
0: when you were there, a, a notable uh, figure when so you were there.
1: that is true. My first time I ever went to the Eiffel Tower, I happened to see uh, Lil Nas X, uh, the.
0: Notable for hometown, uh, old, uh, old Town Road. Old Town it's Road. Old, Road old, yeah. old Town Road.
1: The, uh, he, uh, it's funny enough, the day I saw him was the day that he had broken the record for most consecutive weeks at number one on the billboard. Just a funny coincidence that I happened to run into him.
0: That's pretty awesome. Uh, I didn't see anybody famous when I was photoing. However, uh, I did see just, you know, people in their general day-to-day unbothered state. Most people probably didn't even realize I was taking pictures of them. And I think that that kind of added to a lot of um, what you can see in the photos, because it's one thing if somebody's there and they're not truly candid, but there's like a nice kind of uniqueness to a candid photo of anybody. I mean, that's what's nice about street photography. They could be any person. They're they're nobody special. But the way that you capture somebody in their candid moment can uh, really kind of make, you know, a photo special. It's just so raw.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. I would have to agree with that. And um, being in Paris, just observing the European way of life, just the small moments and the finer things really, uh, they definitely stand out and they're, you know, that was my goal in uh, creating that collection over this summer was just to really um, appreciate these moments and uh, capture them for other people to enjoy.
0: Now, um, back in the day, not as much for me, but still with you, um, you're a big fan of sneakers and that's actually a big part of fashion design. People who enjoy sneakers fancy themselves uh, as sneaker heads especially with Kanye West Yeezy brand as well as Jordan brand sneakers. You know, just general Nike and Adidas streetwear as well as Reebok. I think, you know, there's a lot that goes into to sneaker designs. Uh, if you were to say, if you had a favorite sneaker, uh, what sneaker would you pick?
1: Ooh, that is a really, really tough
0: decision. All right, decision. I'll make it a little easier for you. Favorite pair of retro Jordans?
1: Favorite retro Jordans? Well, I would have to say is there was... Within the last couple of years, there was a uh, re-release of a Jordan 1, it was um, a new colorway however, it was the commem- the commemoratorial pair for the store in Paris actually called Colette, which is like a notorious high fashion dealer throughout the 90s and 2000s that actually closed their doors in 2019 or 2020. and as they closed, they uh, released this limited edition friends and family pair of Air Jordan 1s called the Colettes. And, um, What's the colorway? They're just simple blue and white. And uh, like it's a royal blue and just a crisp white. You can't find them anywhere else. And they have the little logo of the store on the back. And they just shot up in value when they were released.
0: Yeah, I'm going to um, look up them now. Uh, Jordan one colette yeah there it is yep. uh, let's see how much they cost on stockx we'll use stockx as a good reference for sneaker pricing they're averaging around you know between 5 and 8 grand which is yeah. pretty crazy for a pair of sneakers right
1: yeah absolutely i uh I hope to one day uh, add them to my collection and just sit on them. Hopefully they keep on increasing. Well, that's a big
0: thing. Not only do you get to kind of enjoy either wearing or just the overall aesthetic and design of a sneaker, but you're you're almost owning them, you know, as an investment, like a work of art because like art over time, the the value after it's been established will, you know, increase, uh, the value of sneakers might increase as well. Exactly. Personally, for me, I like the classic Jordan 3s. I know I've told you about them. They're featured in the movie Dope. Uh, The main character wears them. It's a great movie for those of you who um, haven't seen it. Um, He wears them throughout the film. Uh, They are a cool sneaker. Um, They're kind of a cement gray, white, with the kind of Chicago Bulls red accent throughout the sneaker. Michael Jordan wore them, I believe, for the free throw line dunk. I could be wrong. I, I believe that you're correct,
1: actually, the white cement threes.
0: Yes, uh, he wore those for that. Um, they're just a nice sneaker, because they're not you know, they're not a low top, but they're not a high top. Yeah. They're kind of like a mid-range length, so you can wear them with a lot of different yeah. clothing. I've never owned a pair. Uh, I've owned a pair of Jordan 1s uh, and Jordan 5s. I've had low top versions of 1s as well. But it's amazing, like, even, like, let's use the Jordan 1 as an example. You mentioned that before. The amount of colorways that go into that shoe. I mean, it is like a white canvas that can be painted and designed different ways. And people, like, you know, almost their personality can be represented by a pair of Jordan 1s. Absolutely. The way that the combinations of color can be used in the different parts of the shoe. Um, I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, Yeezys. uh, Do you have a favorite pair of Yeezys, which are Kanye West's brand
1: Well, with the Yeezys... It's actually pretty fascinating. The uh, story goes that Kanye originally, well, I would say, I guess I'll go to the way beginning of the story. Kanye West, his first shoe designs, really, were in collaboration with uh, Louis Vuitton. Came out with a couple of different versions of sneakers with Louis Vuitton. The Louis Vuitton Don is uh, kind of what they're called. Now, the thing is, Um, Kanye made his transition more into athletic sneakers with Nike and he released the Air Yeezys which were the
0: first ones those old shoes are pretty bulky yeah really bulky
1: probably up to your middle of your shin Um, they're real big like a very fascinating shoe Um, then he came out with the Yeezy 2's which garnered so much hype around them also a collector's edition sneaker released that in a few colorways and then ultimately couldn't come to agreement with nike in negotiating a contract he wanted to be kind of considered like a like a signature athlete like lebron james but uh they had other things in mind for him as a designer and so he ended up moving over to adidas where they kind of just gave him the freedom to do whatever he wanted and he i mean as you know with the yeezy brand has uh so many no, different shoes. So many shoes. So many different, so many, uh, different uh, actually apparel releases. He's on season ten by now, or yeah, so. Yeah,
0: that's what each uh, level, each is a season. Exactly,
1: and um, yeah, since he's been there, it's been really, really uh, fascinating to see what he comes out with. Uh, as far as my favorite Kanye designed shoe, I I'm not answering the Yeezy question particularly. It would be the original. Louis Vuitton, Kanye collaboration, you'll see a mid-top, if you uh, happen to research, you'll see a mid-top, they're in a gray and pink
0: colorway. Wow. Very, very cool shoe. So, um, you know, shoes can be sold, Uh, I know people buy them at auction um, sometimes, and that's kind of a good segue to our next section, which is a little art news from Artnet, that's news.artnet.com. This article is from today, April 1st. I don't believe it's an April Fools article. I hope I'm not being fooled, but the uh, title of the article is Following in the footsteps of other auction houses, Sotheby's will postpone its marquee May sales to June. So, you know, it's coronavirus right now. People are quarantining. Franklin and I are sitting, you know, at a distance um, so we don't come in direct contact. You got to be safe out there. And so, um, you know, a staple of art is, you know, increasing the value of the art at auction, um, selling it. and A lot of these auctions from Christie's and Sotheby's, which are two of the more dominant auction houses when it comes to the sale of art, are stopping their in-person sales. Um, Before we continue on that, I think it's um, time for us to try the second of our uh, drink tasting. Um, We're gonna try um, Puckett's Branch handcrafted Rye Whiskey. It's a little bit more of a dry. It's still a very smooth whiskey. I'll give you a pour, see what you think. Cheers. We clanked the bottom of our glasses, by the way, not the tops. You gotta stay safe. Plus the alcohol might kill <laughs> whatever germs hypothetically come in contact there. Mm. What do you think, Franklin? I'm liking
1: that one. I think it's a little stronger than the other one. A little spicier as well.
0: It definitely, um, <clears throat> it hits uh, a little differently. Um, I would say that um, it definitely has a crispiness to it that the other one does. It's a little less smooth. It's still a very smooth whiskey, but uh, it's kind of got more of a bite to it. Exactly. I I prefer my whiskey with a little bit of a bite to it. Um,
1: You know? Yeah.
0: Personal preference. So um, this article goes on to discuss how um, the company's had success with online sales, and um, they're going to continue holding online auctions to, um, you know, I guess continue uh, bolstering the... The auction world and the making sure the sale of art continues. It's important, you know, that we can't let any level of the art trade die in a period of economic lull, because you know, art um, kind of interacts with a lot of different aspects of the economy and the workforce and you know, you know, just people's personal lives. I mean even just at the most basic level, right? People can do art at home and it's, you know, relaxes people, you know, little kids color in books. Adults even now have coloring books where they can take time to unwind. And yes, they might not be creating a masterpiece, but they're performing art at some level. And, you know, if you look at that at a higher level, um, you know, a lot of money is, um, ex- you know, being exchanged in the sale of art. And oftentimes when people are willing to spend on things like art, more, more luxury goods that's better for the economy. It keeps chugging along.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I think that it's, um, it's unfortunate that the uh, sales and the auctions won't be able to be held in person. Because so I find that uh, in person, you get this uh, additional level of prestige of being in that auction house and really seeing it go down in front of your eyes definitely Um,
0: probably affects the level of bidding that's going on too right i wonder i mean i wonder how uh if 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 there's gonna be an anticipated price that might be achieved in person versus online like do they anticipate that they might not fetch as high of a a bid yeah well well, it's definitely
1: definitely going to be interesting to see how that kind of pans out as yeah in the uh Bidding in person, you would probably have some kind of rival that you're bidding against. You see the other person, it's almost even, uh, it's almost becomes a social thing.
0: Yeah, you don't want them to win. Yeah. It's not even about the owning the <laughs> artwork anymore, it's more about beating somebody out. <laughs> I mean, personally, uh, I've never been in an auction house where, you know, uh, high levels of, you know, uh, money are being placed down as bids on art. Hopefully one day I have the funds to do that, but... You know, I'm a college guy, you know, about to finish college. I'm far off from that, but, you know, that, I would hope as an artist to have art that's one day, you know, in an auction, you know, hosted by Christie's or Sotheby's. I mean, that, that on its own is a level of prestige. I feel like if an artist is being auctioned while, uh, you know, alive, like somebody like Banksy, right? Obviously, people don't know who he is, but he is obviously aware that these auctions are going on. And it must be pretty interesting. It must be satisfying, right? Because he, kind of, he kind of has this whole thing against, you know, the standard art world, yet he's still profiting off of common art practice. Well,
1: yeah, that's, it's funny because, yeah, there's uh, earlier this school year, he had the, uh, the piece that destructed itself upon being... Uh, yes, actually, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It, it had a shredder built into the frame. So the minute it was sold... It was remotely shredded. Yeah, very fascinating,
1: honestly, and a really good take on the whole art uh, auction culture and uh, what value can be uh, inferred as versus, um,
0: you know, uh, displayed as via the artist. Well, something I was mentioning on an earlier episode of the podcast is that, like, art doesn't have value until value has been placed on it in form of sale, right? Like, you could have a work that's done by Banksy and um, that work could sit in his studio or wherever Banksy is located and set up and it could never be shown to people and therefore, hypothetically, until people, uh, you know, credit it to him now that he has had work that's been sold, it doesn't have any value. It only has value once value has been placed on it by someone who's, been, who's willing to prove that hypothetical value by actually purchasing it, which is interesting, right? Um, and uh, auctions are good for doing that and establishing value to art. I mean, what value does a work of art inherently have that isn't just, you know, uh, an aesthetic value, you know, more of an actual fiscal value?
1: Exactly. I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, fascinating to examine, you know, what the value of somebody's art is that's coming up as a new artist, you know. Um, who places the value on it? Who really... Um, can regulate this, this market of various artists, various styles, and various techniques and materials used to make it, you know, who, like, you find galleries placing a specific price tag on a a piece, and, um, you know, it just, uh, it's all subjective, objective, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean that and like there's two ways that art can like, I guess, gain monetary value. It can either be commissioned initially, right? And then the value of the work is based on whatever the artist takes for the commission price, right? So how much the materials are going to cost, how much time they're going to put on it, and how much they think the work is, you know, going to be hypothetically worth. And then there's also, you know, the the selling value, right? So either that commissioned work later gets sold for more than um, it was initially paid for in that um, commissioning transaction, or if that work has just been generated by the artist or given as a gift and then somebody sells it and then hypothetically creates a value for it. And um, a lot of people who are kind of starting in the art game often get value for their work in a monetary way by either getting a commission or uh, getting a gallery and getting a form of exposure. Typically, an auction is, you know, reserved for someone who's already had a relatively established art career, who uh, the auction houses will be comfortable knowing will fetch a significant price at an auction.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that, uh, you know, it's very, it's very interesting because you don't get that same initial value as you have on a sneaker when it comes to art uh with a sneaker you know most nike releases uh air jordan retros maybe for example will be re- released for under 200 dollars, and then from there based on how many they are um who endorses them who owns them what fashion trends dictate. exactly what fashion trends are happening that that'll really influence the value of the sneaker whereas with art it's it's going to be... A, it's totally different. It's up um, in the air a lot exactly. of the time.
0: All right, so um, we're going to segue on to the final section of our podcast, and that is going to be discussing a little art history. Before we get there, um, we're okay. going to have our final drink. Um, we have 10... I mean, a uh, 12-year-aged uh, uh, Glen. The Glenlivet. Uh, it's a single malt scotch. It was given to me for my 21st birthday about two years ago. So uh, we should give it a nice try. It's a nice... Scotch. It's uh, much more clear than uh, the whiskeys. It's more of a a, like a yellowy kind of tone, as opposed the other, which were more of a you know an amber color. Oh yeah, you can
1: definitely see.
0: All right, cheers, my friend. Tell me what you think. Hmm. It's very like thin, it's, it's yeah, it very drinkable, very smooth. It's extremely light. I would say that the Puckett's Branch out of the three definitely had the biggest bite to it. I would agree with that.
1: Yeah, now I'm trying to decide which my favorite of the three is after that.
0: I kind of like the Four Roses. It's got a nice balance. The, Four, the Four, Roses. Four Roses is a little more bold than the Glenlivet, um, but the you know, it's not too much of a bite like the Puckett's Branch, um, it's not too, Simple like the Glenlivet. It's it's kind of got a nice balance out of yeah. them.
1: Yeah, I, I like that, too I definitely think that my favorite's gonna be the Puckett's Branch. I always
0: appreciate
1: a little bit of a bite and uh, Burn in my chest after a nice glass of whiskey.
0: All right, so for art history today um, We're gonna talk a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci mm-hmm. uh, When you think of Leonardo da Vinci Frank, first thing that comes to your mind. Inventor. Inventor, really? Yes. All right. First thing that comes to mind for me is uh, probably the Mona Lisa, which is what we're discussing today. Okay. So do you know um, how the Mona Lisa really gained fame and became such an icon of art and painting? Like when a lot of people think of you know, fine arts the renaissance, they probably think of the Mona Lisa. It's one of the most well-known paintings in the world.
1: Well, what I know about the Mona Lisa is that, if I'm not mistaken, um, it was missing or stolen. Or
0: That's actually what presumed, we're discussing today. stolen so right right uh, a...
1: A number of decades, almost a century, maybe. No,
0: no, no. It was stolen for a very brief period oh, of time. time.
1: Never mind. In that case. <laughs> uh,
0: but you are you are correct in guessing that, or knowing that it was stolen, and that's actually what we're going to talk a bit about today, the disappearance of the Mona Lisa. You know, a uh, funny thing about that is uh, a suspect for a while was actually Pablo Picasso, famous <laughs> artist at the time. He was considered a suspect in the its its disappearance. So it was stolen by a guy named Vincenzo Perugia and he uh, was a thief, most famous for stealing the Mona Lisa. And um, he claimed that he stole it because it was a work of art that belonged in Italy. It was stolen from the Louvre, which is in Paris, France. I'm sure you've been there. Yep. Have you seen the Mona Lisa?
1: I have. Uh, I, I saw it uh, between the shoulders of a large mass of people.
0: <laughs> yeah, they say a lot of people are surprised in its scale. They assume it's going to be a very large work when, in fact, it's, it's not that big.
1: Yeah, it's definitely quite quite a small piece.
0: Um, yeah, it's done on a panel. In fact, it's actually had a tremendous life of being a work. At one point, it was in a bathhouse, and so it sustained some steam damage from that. I think at one point, the JFK administration had it on loan for a very, very brief period of time. Um, you can obviously fact-check me at home if you're listening, but um, that's something I remember reading. I'm but yeah, um, the work was stolen. Um, it wasn't originally in its famous kind of location, but the theft of the work uh, and its eventual return, the whole, uh, you know, spectacle surrounding that ended up giving the work significantly, uh, significant, uh, more, significantly more notoriety as well as uh, interest by the general public. I mean, it went from just a work done by the, the master uh, of the Renaissance, Leonardo da Vinci, to being this, this work of, you know, history and story And um, furthermore, going on to that, um, there's a few copies of the Mona Lisa that a lot of people have, you know, uh, interesting uh, ideas about. Um, There's one or two that people either think are a copy done by da Vinci or Raphael, um, another noted uh, Renaissance painter. Um, The most commonly uh, contested one is called the Isleworth Mona Lisa. It's done on a piece of canvas instead of a piece of poplar. Um, And an interesting thing about that one is um, she almost looks younger, a little, uh, you know, paler. Her features are even softer. I know that um, the features of the actual Mona Lisa are very soft themselves. But um, she's got a more simple look to her. The background's a little more simple in that as well. Some people believe um, that it was a copy done by Raphael. Raphael did visit Da Vinci at one point. Um, in fact, when you look in Raphael's sketchbook, you can even see a sketch of the Mona Lisa. So he was in its presence at one point, which is really interesting. But it's, it's amazing how much uh, contention a work of art can have, and uh, how much lore can be generated by one thing.
1: Oh yeah, and I've heard even uh, various conspiracy theories of who Mona Lisa even is. Um...
0: Yes, I believe the historians believe that it was a wealthy merchant's wife And uh, a lot of people, you know, who are more into conspiracies believe that there are other things behind it. Uh, I've
1: heard heard ones that go as far as uh, claiming that Da Vinci was uh, potential uh, transsexual and viewed himself as a woman. And it was a self-portrait.
0: Um, yeah i've seen I'd, images with and i like, don't know the accuracy to that one <laughs> yeah i've seen images before where people will take a uh, a self-portrait sketch of him and kind of line it up to the mona lisa kind of splice them in half and see what they look like together and um a lot of times people say that when it comes to portrait painting and um i don't know if i can confirm or deny this as a portrait painter but oftentimes you'll take parts of your own face and put them in uh, your works just subconsciously from what you're used to seeing. Um, But uh, yeah, that is a theory I have heard that is not uh, anything too outrageous to say. It's definitely interesting to consider um, all of the hypotheticals behind it. But most people believe it was a commission. He also worked on the Mona Lisa for a pretty long time. Uh, Let me look up the specific dates of um, completion. He worked on it from 1503 to 1506. So that's a long time for a painting to be worked on, three to four years. It's pretty interesting just to consider.
1: Especially uh, when you take its um,
0: size into consideration. Size and over, I mean, yeah, it's a very nicely detailed rendered portrait, but even with, you know, all of those things in mind, I bet you there are people who replicated it before and worked on it in their own workshops and did not take, you know, nearly as much time on the work. Absolutely. I I
1: always, when I think of Mona Lisa, I think of uh, often parodies of the Mona Lisa, oh um, like ivory uh, shop, exactly. Well, I mean, even going further than that into meme culture, I saw on Instagram the other day, Mona Lisa wearing a ge- um a mask, and oh, the caption like- was "Corona Lisa."
0: Oh, that's <laughs> pretty funny. Yes, uh, I mean, I mean, it's it's as I mentioned earlier, it's such an iconic work of art. It's become almost like an iconography you know, version of painting and art in general. A lot of people use it as a representation of art. Um, even a uh, noted uh, Colombian artist, uh, Fernando Botero, who's famous for inventing the style Boterismo, did a version of her where she's all bloated and mm. overweight and very cartoonishly rounded. Right. So it's been played with by a lot of artists. I mentioned uh, Duchamp earlier. Uh, he painted a mustache, I believe, on a postcard of the Mona Lisa. So, oh uh, yeah,
1: that could be seen maybe as the original Mona Lisa meme.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, back back in the day. So uh, with that, I think we'll call it. Um, this has been a wonderful session. you have any closing remarks, anything you'd like to add?
1: I just want to thank you for having me. I'm uh, honored to be included in this podcast. And uh, for those of you listening at home, stay safe.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty interesting too. We have a uh, you know, whiskey special, so this is a bit of a different one than normal. Um, For those of you who can enjoy, you know, uh, alcohol and you're of age, I suggest you give these ones a try. For those of you who can't yet, you know, soon your time will come. But uh, that being said, um, thank you all for listening. Um, This has been Keyboard Canvas, Episode 3. I'm your host, Joseph Mandel, signing off. Have a nice day.